Welcome to the Soul Grit Podcast. I'm Ann Taylor McNeese, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I also love Jesus, and I'm passionate about all things gospel and therapy. I created Soul Grit to be at the intersection of mental health and Christian faith. Christ followers need a place to ask questions and get answers about mental health. Join me as we dive into real stories and real questions from people who want to honor God with their hearts, souls, and minds. Hey, welcome back to the Soul Grit Podcast. This is Anne, and I'm here today with Ryan Ragazine. He's the host of the Thinker Sensitive Podcast, and he's going to talk to us today about some mental health stuff and some Jesus stuff, as we always do here on the Soul Grit Podcast. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So could you tell us, well, first of all, tell us about your podcast a little bit, because I'm a total podcast junkie, and I like to hear about different ones I haven't heard before, so... Yeah. So thinker sensitive is in some ways a culmination of my personal history. Um, I lost my faith in God pretty early on. I grew up in church, but I lost my faith in God when I was about 12 years old. Mm. And um, throughout my teenage years, I kind of turned to philosophy to find answers to some of my questions. And I ended up coming back to my faith, kind of reconstructing my faith when I was um, maybe around 19 or 20. Okay. And I had a pretty dynamic conversion experience, actually. And then I felt called to ministry in some way. And so I decided to study theology. And so the podcast is kind of um, a reflection of that journey. It deals with a lot of issues of doubt and uh, faith. Um, kind of from an, an apologetic um, perspective, even though I don't use that word very often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it deals with a lot of big questions. And then the other thing is I talk a lot about the importance of sound thinking and sound communication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a lot of the early part of the podcast kind of talking about what is sound thinking look like? And what does sound communication look like, especially in our day and age, where I think there's a lot of, for better or worse, poor thinking, maybe and poor communication, especially in in social media. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what does sound thinking and sound communication look like? And then once we establish that, now we can think about the big questions of life. Now we can think soundly about the big questions, like the question of God. And now we can communicate soundly about issues like that. So that's what thinker sensitive is, is all about. Yeah. So that kind of married that philosophical bent that you had as a teenager with your theology training later. Yeah, for sure. Good. And you had mentioned right before we hit record that you were homeschooled and so (laughs) it was that all, all the way through K-12. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering, how did your mom and dad deal with your, your in-between years there? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. This, this might sound odd. Um, okay. I did not really tell my parents mm. what I was going through spiritually during that time. Wow. Um, maybe part of that was I was embarrassed. I didn't know how to talk about it. And I think sometimes like in the church, we don't create um, an environment 
that's welcoming to ask those kinds of questions. And I'm not saying that like people in my church weren't open to having those conversations. I just didn't feel maybe comfortable talking about it. Yeah. I, and maybe part of it is I didn't want to like worry my parents either. To yeah. Be honest. yeah. Yeah. I totally get that impulse. Yeah. Okay. And so then you went to college and seminary. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So I went to a small Bible school in Texas, hmm. which was a culture shock for me because I grew up in Detroit, <laughs> Michigan. And um, oh, okay. it, it was a major culture shock in terms of just like the South and accents okay. and just the way of life. It's a lot slower. Yeah. But it was a difficult experience in some ways because I think I was very academically oriented mm-hmm. and a lot of my peers weren't so academically oriented or at least like the Bible college in general was not like, didn't foster like a academic environment, I guess. Like I had one thing I would say though, is I had great professors. Yeah. And I think one of the advantages of going to a small school is you get to build relationships with those professors. So my theology professor, who is the head of the theology department, he actually married my wife and I Mm. later on. um, And we're still good friends um, and keep in touch. And so those relationships, I think, were really awesome with some of my professors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then did you go to seminary as well? Yeah. So during college, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. So I majored in theology because I felt like that was general enough to um, (laughs) apply to a lot of areas, I guess. Um, As I went on, and this, this kind of relates to OCD, I became super obsessed with learning and acquiring knowledge and had just this desire to like know everything, right? Yeah. Like it's not humanly possible, but I had this, this passion and that sparked a lot of my OCD. But um, as I went through college, I started to open up myself to the idea of getting my master's degree and then getting a PhD. So graduated from college, went off to seminary, um, Asbury Theological Seminary, it's in Mm -hmm. Kentucky, went to seminary and really started again. Um, I'm going to go get my PhD. I want to teach in college. I want to teach philosophy and theology. And that's my dream job. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm going to do. And it didn't turn out that way. Um, And a large part of that was because of OCD. Yeah. So do you want to get into like, how how did you get diagnosed? Like what, what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, in college, I developed really bad habits. And because I don't have any kind of um, training in psychology or psychiatry, I, I didn't maybe realize it. Sure. And I think for a long time, I just thought like, this is the way I am. This is yeah. the way I'm wired. This is the way I do things and I deal with things. And so in college, I had no idea that I had any kind of mental illness or disorder or anything. Um, you just thought maybe you were quirky. This is just personality thing. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though my habits were awful. So in college, most of my OCD just revolved around learning and schoolwork. Okay. Um, I would, and man, OCD just stole all of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I would read a book for class, Um, I would reread a sentence 10 times, 15 times. And when you have to read 
three chapters of a book and you're doing that for every sentence, just think about that. Um, And when I would write, uh, I would have all kinds of bad habits um, in my footnotes or citations. I would like check those like 20 times to make sure the page number was right. I would, when I would read a book and I would flip a page, I would have this fear, again, this irrational fear that I had skipped pages when I turned the page. And so I would go back, I would Mm -hmm. flip back and go, yep, I would do that like 10, 15 times. Um, So that was, it was awful. (laughs) But again, I I just thought like, this is just the way I am. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know any better. But um, yeah, it's still really meticulous, right? (laughs) Yes. And it makes the smallest thing super stressful. And it steals all your time. Mm -hmm. In college, my OCD was really like relegated to just schoolwork. Okay. In seminary, it started to spill over into every area of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I think most people listening are probably familiar with kind of this caricature of OCD, like you wash your hands all the time, you check the locks, like that kind of thing. So it might be unfamiliar to some people to realize that it could come down to something like checking the page number over and over again. Like that's probably um, something that felt unique to you, but is actually common for people that are struggling with OCD, depending on, you know, what setting you're in, obviously you were in the higher education setting. And so that's where it's coming out. So tell us like when you got to seminary, where did you see it spilling over? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the things you're talking about. So like locking doors, Mm -hmm. what's really funny. It wasn't funny then it's funny. (laughs) Now I had, um, what do you call those jobs in school that they pay like, like work study, you work study. Yeah. Yeah. I had a work study position in seminary where I did security. Mm. Um, but really like my job, it it wasn't like a traditional security. It was a small town in Kentucky, so it wasn't dangerous or anything. Um, really what I did was I went around campus and made sure the doors were locked. (laughs) Oh, you're the perfect guy for this. huh? (laughs) And you know, there's like, 200, 300, uh, hundreds of doors um, all throughout the campus. And so I'm going around checking the doors are locked and each door I'm checking like 10 times. Mm -hmm. And I probably like broke doors because like, you know, I'm checking them over and over again and like pulling really hard and like really aggressive locking doors. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So locking doors, I like washing hands, brushing my teeth was a big one. Um, uh, turning off lights, mm-hmm. any, yeah, at almost anything. It, it was awful. It, it became like so crippling. Yeah. It's all consuming. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. At that point when you're in seminary, did you have a diagnosis yet? So, so no, not really. I, I was trying to think of like when I realized that maybe I had an actual like disorder. Yeah. And I remember telling one of my professors some of my habits and she was like, that's not right. And like, again, still at that time, I was thinking, well, this is just like the way I deal with things. But she was like, that doesn't sound right. I have you ever thought about like going to see a psychologist and, um, getting some counsel on this. And that was kind of the first time maybe it like, um, came into my mind that maybe I had something wrong with me. Um, but the OCD in seminary 
it got so paralyzing that I had to drop out twice mm. during that time. And then um, I did see a psychiatrist, I think after my first dropout, and I was diagnosed with a severe anxiety disorder and yeah, severe OCD. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what was that recovery like so that you could rejoin seminary? Well, I was, I was placed on medication, mm-hmm. but the medication didn't do much at that time. Mm. And it actually, things got worse and worse. Um, after the first time I dropped out, I, the way I explain it is like I was on the brink of insanity because mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give it an example. I would walk into a room in a house and, you know, you have uh, anything like hanging on the walls, like paintings or pictures. Mm-hmm. Every step I took in a room, I, th- I had this fear that everything on the walls were going to fall down. Mm-hmm. And so I would walk into a room and then it would take so much courage for me to take a step. Or like, um, and then if I found the courage to walk out of a room, I would like go back and like double and triple check to see if like everything was still on the wall. So I was, it was off. It was, I was on the brink of insanity. I really felt like that. And during that time, I really felt like life wasn't worth living anymore. Mm -hmm. Like life as I knew it then, as I was experiencing, it was not worth living. And I think, um, my faith in God, honestly, was probably the only thing that like kept me alive and kept me like trying to, to overcome what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I think what ultimately brought me out was actually like a pretty miraculous experience, like divine intervention. Um, Mm. and maybe that's another story for another time, but like that, I think it ultimately took like God doing something like amazing to get me out of that. Mm-hmm. So you had that amazing encounter that now we're all like, Oh, we've got to, when are we going <laughs> to talk to Ryan again? So we can hear. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then you went back to seminary and then you dropped out again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same, same issues. Yeah. Same kind of issues. Like a lot of it like came back. Okay. Um, And I really believe, again, if you're not religious, it's going to be hard to relate to this. Um, But I really believe it was kind of God using that to direct my life, um, to direct me. I I don't, like looking back on it now, but even back in that experience, like I don't actually think that it was part of God's plan for my life for me to um, teach in college. Maybe okay. he wanted something different from me. And I feel like he was kind of using some of those experiences to lead me away from that. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing about me and that God knows about me is I'm super stubborn and <laughs> I'm a never say die kind of person. So I'm just going to keep like pursuing something until that door is completely shut. Yeah. And um, my belief is that God understands that and knows that about me and like sure. made sure that that door was completely shut. Yeah. Yeah. So when you went back the second time, did you, did you complete the degree or did God redirect you? So God redirected me, but then, um, my, my wife and I, uh, went to Colorado cause she's from Colorado. Okay. And so we, we were married in Colorado and we went back to Colorado to, to look at some different like opportunities in ministry. Mm-hmm. And it was in Colorado when I finally finished my degree. Um, 
away from the campus. Okay. Still through Asbury? Yep. Okay. So you finally got that done. Yeah. When you were on campus there, did you feel like among seminarians, did people understand what you're going through? Did they have a, an idea about mental health? It's a good question. I, I didn't tell many people though, when I dropped out, like people knew that something was going on and I did confide in some friends during that time. I'm not sure how much they really understood. I think OCD is a very weird thing to people Mm -hmm. who like don't experience it. Like how could a person possibly like wash their hands 10 times? I think it's hard to relate to for most people, but yeah. So I, I think they, they sympathized, but you know, couldn't really empathize. Yeah. At that time, were you aware of anybody else in your classes that was dealing with mental health stuff? No. Yeah. No. And yet statistically, we know they probably were. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 That's one of those things that just really irks me about like the way that we do church and the way that we do Christian community is that we don't, we don't feel like we can talk about those things. Like people wouldn't understand. People would think we didn't have as much faith. Like Jesus should sure. be healing me. Like all of those things. Like, sure. Wish we could just talk about a little bit more. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've like, personally, I've never, as far as like mental illness goes, I've never felt uncomfortable about talking about it, especially now I do kind of assume that just like <laughs> most people have some kind of issue with anxiety or depression, at least yeah. um, during some season in their lives, if not like throughout their lives. So to me, um, it's not something that I'm shy about talking about. Maybe when I was younger, it was, but, but not now. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think there is change in like generationally, like we're going to be talking more about it now than our, our parents' generation did, you know? Yeah. But, okay. So after seminary, you moved to Colorado or, I mean, I guess as you were finishing seminary, you moved to Colorado, Sure. you got married and you, you guys are planted there now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did the OCD continue to look like at that point in your life? Yeah. So things got a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon, as soon as I made that decision that I wasn't going to continue my education, mm-hmm. um, things got a lot better. Now there are still like I would say like remnants of OCD in my life, but it's so much more manageable now. I remember like in college, um, I first started creating rules for myself where it's like, okay, you're only allowed to reread a sentence two times. Or Mm -hmm. when you flip a page, you're only allowed to check it once. And I just didn't have the strength Mm -hmm. to consistently follow those rules. The thing with OCD is if you don't, consistently follow rules like um throughout the course of the entire day and entire week then you're not going to overcome it like mm-hmm. from a behavioral standpoint mm-hmm. um because these habits just they just tack on and tack on yeah. and, Re- and reinforce themselves yeah. yes um and that's why i think it's really hard to overcome ocd without medication probably mm-hmm. but um now it's like, and I'm on medication now, <clears throat> now as well, but 
now I feel like I have the strength to follow my rules, if that makes yeah. sense, where yeah. before I could not. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and for the most part now, here's an interesting thing about OCD is OCD, at least in my experience, makes you live in a way that isn't intuitive or instinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, and normal people, I know maybe like psychologists don't like using that terminology, but like people who don't have OCD, Typical. yeah, <laughs> right. <grade> people. <laughs> yeah, people who don't have OCD live instinctively, mm. intuitively, and they live by faith and trust in so many ways that I think they don't recognize. Mm. And I think part of my problem when I was really struggling with OCD is I had to be certain about everything. Mm. I had to verify everything. So you double check everything. I had to have proof of everything. And the normal, the person who doesn't struggle with OCD doesn't have to do that. They don't realize that they're living by faith or trust, but they are. Mm. So it's like when you go to drive your car, you don't pop the hood and check all the wiring to make sure that everything is right before you start your car and drive it. You just accept that by faith. Yeah. Um, When you shut your garage door and it's, and it's closing, you don't have to like sit, sit there and watch it go all the way down in order for you to trust that it worked properly. Yeah. But when you have, when you're struggling with OCD, you have to like do those kinds of things. And so we live by faith on a daily basis in so many areas and by trust. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I was really struggling with OCD, it's like I did not allow myself to have any faith or any trust. Everything had to be verified and verified mm-hmm. empirically. And you can't live like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's not a, he- a healthy way to live. And um, I talk a lot about it on my podcast because I deal a lot with um, epistemology that all knowledge is faith-based. I I say that a lot. And I know that profoundly because of my experience. Um, And I, you know, when I was really bad with OCD, it's like I couldn't even trust my senses because I'm turning off a faucet and I'm looking at it for minutes you know, and I can't even trust what I'm seeing. Yeah. So there's like no ability to have any kind of semblance of trust or faith. And mm-hmm. that's, you can't live like that. Mm-hmm. I bet that was a really interesting connection for you when it comes to like your personal faith in Jesus or your understanding of God. Like, like, yeah, of course, if you can't even trust your eyeballs that the faucet is turned off, then how are you going to trust like this big, unknowable, unseeable thing in the universe, right? Right. So yeah. as you're overcoming the OCD symptoms and learning just to trust your senses and to live in this place of, of faith and intuition, like I can see how your faith would benefit from that. No doubt about it, for sure. And I think, yeah, it really helped in terms of my understanding of knowledge, because I think what I struggled with when I was a teenager is I needed certainty. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if I couldn't be certain um, that God was real, I couldn't believe that God was real. And so um, I think the OCD was like a learning process in that too, of, of, of showing me like, well, no, like, 
in a lot of ways, certainty is a human impossibility. And, and part of being a human is like accepting your limitations, my limitations, mm-hmm. and my limitations in terms of what I can know. And um, it's coming to terms with that. And yeah. the OCD, I think, was part of that, of, of me understanding, like, no, like, I, as a human being, I'm constantly dependent upon faith and trust in every area of my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and even empiricism in itself, even like this um, knowledge that comes from the senses itself, you have to trust that. <laughs> you have to have faith right. in that right. um, and in the trustworthy worthiness of those senses. So. Yeah. I mean, faith is so like comprehensive, Mm -hmm. um, in life. Mm -hmm. Just for the benefit of listeners, I like to be kind of educational here as well. And I want to give you the opportunity to describe in your own words, like we, we toss around this phrase OCD and most people have some, like, like this picture behind me right here is not perfectly straight. I understand that might be bothering (laughs) some people in this interview. (laughs) And so, but people have this conception that, okay, like you're going to walk around straightening things and checking things and like that's OCD and they use it in that pop culture sense. And I don't know if that bothers you as much as it bothers me. Like when people say, oh my gosh, you're so bipolar, meaning you're, you're, you have moods, you know, um, or people will say, oh, I'm so OCD about that. And really they're just orderly or they're just meticulous. And it's, it doesn't have this characteristic of having like this anxiety disorder order that's fueling all of this. And so I want to give you the chance to talk about like, what is obsessive compulsive disorder mean? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a tough question coming from a psychologist who knows it better than I do. Well, I'll, um, I'll jump in and I'll do the educational <laughs> piece, but I, I want it from you because like, like I can, I can spout out the clinical definition, but you're going to have an experiential definition of what that sure. means. So, sure. so talk about the obsessive part. Yeah. So, well, to piggyback off of what you were saying at first, I do think that using the term OCD in this kind of like flipping um, way, it does kind of diminish like actual OCD, I think, and take mm-hmm. and take away from like how serious it is and yeah. how difficult it is to deal with. So yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um. I I can only speak on my experience. Um, So like the obsessiveness for me, again, it was related to a lot of different characteristics that can be good characteristics, but in excess are really bad. Um, I'm a hyper perfectionist. I'm very skeptical. I'm pessimistic. And OCD plays into all of those things. Um, For me, um, you know, why would I double check things? Because I wanted to be perfect because I wasn't willing to make any mistakes. Um, because I was super skeptical and doubting everything. Mm -hmm. And so I was, a, I was, a, and I was obsessive about everything that I cared about. Okay. Um, now in seminary, it got way out of control, but like, if I cared about acquiring knowledge and I was obsessive about it and, um, my perfectionism and my skepticism would feed into all of that. Um, But in my experience, a lot of it was not trusting my senses. A lot of it was also like 
a means to, this is going to sound really weird, a means to verify things or to feel like something was true. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when we think of OCD, we think about it in physical terms, like with, with our senses, like verifying or checking a faucet or whatever. But for me, it was also mental. Okay. So I would um, repeat maybe a proposition in my mind over and over and over again. And the only way I can explain it is I would do this until it would click in my mind. Okay. Um, and when I felt like it clicked in my mind, then I felt like I could accept it as being true. Mm. Um, so I would, I would do this kind of thing as a verifier for truth. And I would also do it in order to remember things. So I would repeat something in my mind over and over and over again in order to internalize it and kind of like to store it in my like mental hard drive. Sure. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, but so to, to jump in with a little bit more of the clinical language here, yeah. like the obsessive part of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder is that thought part. So the O happens in your mind. Like it's yeah. the thoughts come and you can't get rid of them. And you keep having the thought over and over and over again. And that's like, I can say, oh my gosh, I'm so obsessed with chocolate. But honestly, I can do a lot of other things besides eat chocolate in my day, you know? And, but with OCD, the obsession comes where the thought just will not leave your mind. And so you're trying to do whatever you can do to settle that down and move yes. on. Okay. Yes. So then explain the compulsion part. Well, the compulsion part is all of the habits, right? All the things that you do in order to kind of satiate the obsession that you're talking about. Right. So, so it's the behavioral part. Right? Yeah. So, so the compulsion would be the rereading a sentence a thousand times or um, double checking to see if a door is locked. Mm-hmm. Those would all be the, the compulsory, would that be the right word? Mm-hmm. Um, aspects of it. And so, yeah, you're trying, like you said, the obsession just won't go away. And, and what you're trying to do is get it to go away so that you can move on to the next thing that you're going to obsess about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's like having an itch that you just really need to scratch. And it's like, you know it, you know that you shouldn't scratch it, but like you have to. Yeah. And so that's where the the um, behavior comes in is you're just trying to scratch that itch and get rid of it, mm-hmm. but really you're only making it worse. Yeah. And you know, like if you've been camping and you got a mosquito bite, like you, if you don't itch it, it's like all consuming. It's like you keep thinking about it Yes. and you can't move on with anything until you do that behavior, except that doing that behavior just makes it more itchy. <laughs> and then, yes. then you repeat the cycle over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's awful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, when we look at it, like diagnostically OCD is in the category of anxiety disorders. And so anxiety, um, 
appears in many different forms. It could be like generalized anxiety or like a social anxiety or a specific phobia or any of those different kinds of anxiety. But this kind of anxiety just comes up in those like repetitive, intrusive, obsessive thoughts over and over again. And Mm -hmm. then it leads to the behavior, which kind of fits. Like I've talked a lot on the podcast about cognitive behavior therapy. It fits because we go from our thoughts to our feelings, to our behaviors, and we can't change our behaviors and unless we change our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the issue with OCD is that if the thoughts keep coming, you're You're just going to keep repeating the behaviors yeah. ad nauseum. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, so now at this point in your life, um, you have pretty good control with the medication. You're able to say no to some of those things and, and put, like you said, rules for yourself in your life in, I just wonder, like, so your wife came along during this time where you're dealing with all of this, like, what do you think it's like to be married to a person with OCD? (laughs) Can we get her in here? (laughs) I think when I was really struggling with it, it would have been awful. Yeah. Um, I, so in seminary, I got to a point where like, I didn't trust myself reading all that much. Mm Mm-hmm. Cause I knew I couldn't get like through it. So I would have uh, my wife like read to me. Um, (laughs) and I would like drag her through the OCD. Right. Because like, Oh, reread that sentence, uh, reread that paragraph. And so she would be kind of like experiencing that hell with me. And Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that, that would not have been fun. So did you not trust her to have read every sentence or to have read every page? I wouldn't trust myself to comprehend it. To comprehend it. Okay. Um, Or even like, yeah, just having an irrational fear that like I didn't hear it right Mm -hmm. or I didn't comprehend it right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But um, yeah. And I I know that I I could be very irritable because of that. Right. Like when, when you're going through something like that, Um, I needed to be like in very quiet environments. Like if I was reading, cause I need to like really concentrate on what I was doing. And so I could be like pretty irritable for Mm -hmm. sure. Do you think that she's come up with strategies for dealing with it? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say dealing with you, but then I thought that's what it means. So (laughs) no, that's fine. Um, I'm not sure. I'd have to ask her. I'm not sure. I, now it's not, like I said, a, a big issue. So I feel like now um, it's not something that weighs on her anymore. Okay. Okay. But man, it, it really did at the time, for sure. Do you guys have kids? We do not, no. Okay. Do you have animals? We do not. Okay, perfect. So you don't have to like learn how to deal with that new thing. Yes. Too. I okay. think that's one of the reasons why, to be totally yeah. honest with you, is... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I didn't mention is when my anxiety was really severe, I also had horrible sleep deprivation Mm. and that fed into the OCD. It's hard enough to deal with OCD when you're getting good sleep, but when you're consistently on a half hour of sleep a night, um, it's, it's impossible to deal with it. Um, And that's what I was going through. And that's, I think, partly why I got so bad to the point where I was on that brink of insanity is because I was severely sleep deprived while going through all of this. And that screws with your mind so badly. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, one of the first things I always tell people when they come in for counseling, like, first of all, how are you sleeping? And if you're not, <laughs> that's like the first thing that we're going to work on. Cause you can't do like higher level thinking. You can't do emotional regulation. You can't be healthy in your body. None of that without sleep. That's, that's yeah. priority. Number one, <laughs> you're sleeping better now. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm, again, I'm taking medication for it. So I take trazodone mm-hmm. and it has been a lifesaver to me. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's changed my life. Yeah. Okay. And so just the educational piece again, if, uh, if you guys get ever get prescribed trazodone, one of the things that you can know is like, it's basically prescription strength Benadryl. It's a antihistamine which sounds really weird to deal with anxiety, but if you've ever had to take Benadryl, like if you ha- were, were having some kind of allergic reaction, um, you get real sleepy. And so <laughs> the doctors figured out that if we give antihistamines to people with anxiety, it helps them calm down and go to sleep. And it's really, it's not one of those like habit forming or like dangerous kinds of things to be taking. So uh, that was a really cool discovery. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's the only thing that's ever worked for me because I've, I, you know, I've tried a lot of more mild things like it, it's called melatonin. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. and other things like that. And I think for somebody who, who has a hard time falling asleep because of a restless mind and because yeah. of anxiety, mm-hmm. um, I needed something stronger and yeah. yeah, this has been working for me for a long time now. Good. Glad to hear yeah. that. Um, so how can people find out more about what you're doing? And um, so the thinker sensitive podcast, I'm assuming it's on all the platforms. Yeah. It's on every podcast app, every social media platform. Um, and then the website we're really blessed to have, it's just thinkersensitive.com. Um, so really blessed to have that. And yeah, if, if you're interested, please subscribe. I'm always looking for subscribers and yeah. new listeners. So yes, please check it out. Yeah. Is it an interview format like this or, or do you mostly do solo? It's a monologue format. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So we're getting really like the inner workings of your brain when you listen, <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> yeah. enter at your own risk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Was there anything about OCD or about your faith that you wanted to share that I didn't ask you about? Um, maybe just one thing that I would mention in terms of what I, what I learned from it all. I, I talked about faith and certainty. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think another thing is the inability to make the unwillingness to make mistakes. Mm. And as a perfectionist, that's really hard. And I know there's a lot of people who are perfectionists out there who are probably listening. Mm -hmm. And I would just say it is healthy to make mistakes. Yeah. It is healthy to be willing to make mistakes. And a large part of my OCD was because I was unwilling to make errors. Yeah. So, you know, I'm checking my citations. Like who does that? Like I'm checking, like the professor probably is not checking those citations. He's not looking at it. I'm checking it. (laughs) Because I want to make sure that it's, it's perfect and there's no mistakes. Accurate. And that is unhealthy. That is not a healthy way to live. And so one of the ways I actually kind of like um, started to battle against my OCD is when I would like write an email or a text, I would like purposely make mistakes yeah. to get myself to accept my 
um, fallibility to accept the fact that I'm an imperfect human being and to come to terms with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. And I think it relates to our Christian faith and our walks with God. Yeah. Some of us come from legalistic backgrounds. Um, some of us are really perfectionistic with our faith and our walks. And part of being a Christian is accepting the grace of God, mm-hmm. accepting the fact that we're going to make mistakes and that God loves us unconditionally. And I always think about Jesus' relationship with his um, disciples. Yeah. His disciples constantly made mistakes and yet Jesus never gave up on them. Mm-hmm. He, he believed in them and um, he was always there to welcome them back. Even um, during his passion week and the crucifixion, um, when all of his disciples for the most part deserted him mm-hmm. um, afterwards, Jesus came right back to them yeah. and was like, all right, let's, let's continue this. You know, you guys, you guys may have deserted me, but I'm bigger than that. And my faithfulness is bigger than your lack of faithfulness. And I'm here for you and let's continue on. And that's, you know, having that understanding that we're going to make mistakes, but God's grace covers that. And he's going to walk, walk through that with us. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you just reminded me of another question I was going to ask you and I forgot to do it. So I know I said we're wrapping up, but one more question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I have heard a lot of people who have religious backgrounds and who also have a diagnosis of OCD really struggle with scrupulosity, which yeah. is like this um, compulsion to, to do everything, like be incredibly moral, be incredibly correct in a religious sense. Yeah. Is that, is that something that ever came up for you? No, (laughs) no, I luckily no. Um, I may, and maybe part of that is because I have a really strong, like, I guess, Protestant background, um, where grace is such an important thing to me. Mm -hmm. And so I never struggled with that personally. I did, I did grow up in more of a legalistic background. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I had a similar experience to like Luther. Yeah, I was going to uh, say this where, sounds a little Luther-esque to me. <laughs> yeah, I think I had a similar experience where like um, some of the books in the New Testament, like Romans and Galatians, like really like changed my heart. Sure. And I've always had a kind of a deep appreciation for the grace of God. And, and that's, yeah, that's really important. And it really helped me. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, any words of encouragement for somebody who might think now that they've listened to this, like, maybe I'm not just quirky. Maybe I got something going on. Yeah. I mean, if that's you, uh, there's absolutely no shame with seeking help. There's no shame whatsoever in, um, scheduling an appointment with a psychologist and, and really working on it on that kind of level. And there's no shame in getting on medication. Like, People, uh, again, you can speak to this way better than I can, but I'm assuming that I have some kind of natural chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what's the best solution for that than to find some medication that can help balance that out? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, otherwise it's just an uphill battle. Because to me, anxiety is an orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you have like this strong bent towards anxiety, then, you know, there's no shame in looking for, for medication that can help 
change that bent or that orientation and make it easier for you to, um, to work through those things. Sure. Yeah. And if you're, if you're considering that medication issue, really encourage listeners to go back and listen to the episodes where I talked with pastor drew Frozy, where he talked about getting on meds. I also shared an episode where I talked about my own experience with medication and, and just some, some of the considerations that we have as Christians taking medication and, and getting on the right track like that. So thank you again for reinforcing that, that sometimes it is just, as much a physical thing in our body, like, a whether that's like anatomical, physiological, it's a, a neurochemical issue that we're having. And so sometimes we can't, we can have all the knowledge. We can know all of the behavioral changes, but we can't do them mm-hmm. until our brain calms down. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've always looked at it like that, that, um, if you're on a medication that works, it's like the medication is basically enabling you to work through it. Yeah. Um, because the orientation is so strong mm-hmm. that you need something to balance that out in order for you to really um, make positive changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I don't struggle with OCD, although a couple of times when you're talking, I was wondering, is that an obsession? <laughs> um, but I do struggle with depression and that's the thing. Like I can know, like, Oh, I do my CBT or do my whatever. And I can't, when I'm in that spot, I have to yes. have the, the little bit of boost of the serotonin to be able to do the things I need to do to get better. Um, yes. So, okay. So Ryan, what are you doing for soul care? Yeah, I, a lot, a lot of different things. Um, I have hobbies that I really enjoy that I think are life-giving. Yeah. Um, so I'm a musician and a songwriter and playing music and writing music is very cathartic for me. Which instrument do you prefer? A uh, guitar. Okay. Guitar. Yeah. Um, I love cooking. Mm. Cooking is like a big time creative outlet for me. And my wife loves the fact that I love cooking. Yeah, too, yeah. So it okay. works for both of us. What, what's um, your best dish? Ooh, I'm Italian. So anything, okay. anything Italian, um, okay. whether it's, now I'm Sicilian, so this sounds weird, okay? But Sicilians, we we bread our meats. Sure. So breaded steak, breaded chicken. Um, even <laughs> my wife thinks this is super weird, but like even breaded pork chops. I yeah. know it sounds weird, but um, we bread our meats and then like just any pasta. My wife and I make homemade pasta, so fettuccine and nice. uh, ravioli. And yeah, any sauces too, whether it's pesto or Alfredo mm-hmm. or yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. The music, wor- cooking. Yeah. Working out, obviously. Okay. Um, sometimes I'm too tired to, to work out, but when I have the energy, mm-hmm. that's a big thing. And then of course, like spiritual disciplines, um, just reading my Bible, praying, those things are just life-giving. And, yeah. and, gr- and ground me in um, truths that I think are really beautiful and um, that help me throughout my life. Sure. So mind, body, spirit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much for lending your voice today and giving us that inside glimpse about what it looks to be a thinker, but to also struggle with this disorder that a lot of people don't know that much about. So I really appreciate that. 
Yeah. Thanks so much for just giving me the platform and for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I hope that other people are going to go subscribe to your podcast as well and, and get some more uh, thoughts that way. And, um, as I I mentioned to you before we hit record, I'm coming to Colorado Springs next (laughs) month. So now I know I can get fresh pasta when I come. So thanks for that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Best friends now, right? (laughs) Yes, for sure. Okay. Thanks, Rain. Yeah. Thank you. The Soul Grit Podcast is a production of Soul Grit Resources. You can find more at soulgritresources.com or on the socials at Soul Grit Resources. You can email me at info at soulgritresources.com. <laughs>